Welcome to Southern Songs and Stories, showcasing the music of the South and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Joe Kendrick, and in this episode, we conclude our deep dive into a question that I always bring up with the artists and bands featured here. How does Southern music influence culture and vice versa? What does it mean to make music in the South, and how does the South show itself in the music? With part two of our two-part series, I continue talking with many of the guests from episode one. Laura Businger, Kim Rule, Garrett Woodward, Daniel Coston, Ty Gilpin, and Stu Vincent, and bring in some new voices as well. Fred Mills, editor at Capital at Play and music magazine Blurt Online, and banjo player Jens Kruger of the Kruger Brothers. Our conversations on the intersections of Southern culture and music go forward in time to the current era, as we get an ear for artists as groundbreaking as Doc Watson and as tongue-in-cheek as Southern culture on the skids. We'll hear how Southern forms are reflected in the music of artists from across the ocean and much more. We get into how Southern hospitality is alive and well and touch on how there's a darker side to the culture that has always been there and remains to this day. This episode is sponsored by Dynamite Roasting, organic and fair trade coffee from Black Mountain, North Carolina, and available worldwide at dynamiteroasting.com. And we're sponsored by you when you support Southern Songs and Stories on our Patreon page or directly on our website at southernsongsandstories.com. We're glad you're listening and hope you may support the music of the artists you enjoy hearing here and can spread awareness of their work as well as ours at Southern Songs and Stories. Right now you're hearing the song Dixie Jubilee by New Orleans clarinetist Pete Fountain, whose appearances on the Lawrence Welk Show in the late 50s helped bring back Dixieland jazz into popularity nationwide. Speaking of New Orleans and Dixie, here's a bit of the New Orleans suspects with Dixie Highway. Now I'm dancing on this Dixie Highway And getting nowhere just as fast as I can on a road with no wind all beginning yeah. Running through old Dixieland Georgia, Alabama, and parts of Louisiana All claim to have a piece of the road Kentucky to You don't hear the word Dixie as much now as it mainly refers to the states that seceded from the Union and formed the Confederacy. It has that whole militaristic, lost-cause connotation going on, and that's more and more in the margins these days. Plenty of people are waving the stars and bars still, but that's a conversation for another day. Getting back to the word Dixie, though, it's appropriate that we hear New Orleans music when talking about the term because it came from the Crescent City, referring to currency first used by Citizens State Bank, located in the French Quarter, and then by other banks in Louisiana. These banks issued $10 notes labeled Dix, French for 10 on the reverse side. The notes were known as Dixies by English-speaking Southerners, and the area around New Orleans and the French-speaking parts of Louisiana came to be known as Dixieland, which was broadened to refer to the overall antebellum South. Picking up where we left off in the last episode, many of our guests talked about how they've experienced Southern hospitality. Several of them aren't from here, including Kruger Brothers banjo player Jens Kruger, who came from Sweden. Well, actually, noteworthy is that people here are actually very nice. You know, I, I, I go to a restaurant, they call me honey, they fill up my coffee. 
and uh, it's the coffee is still full when I leave the restaurant. That was the first place you know I've ever experienced anything like that. And uh, also, you know, coming to the south of my family uh, was really remarkable because uh, my my children, I put them to school, and everybody was really nice to them. And in Europe, I don't think it's that open-hearted. You know, it's uh, it's a little more reserved. You're a stranger, you're a stranger, and I don't think that. You know, Clint Howard used to tell me we would. We, he said, you know, and I quote him a little bit. You know, he said uh, we we didn't used to be like that. If there was a stranger, we wouldn't talk to him. You know, we wouldn't pay attention to him. Their strangers were not welcome when he was young. He said, you know. But the South, for me, my my experience, you know, was very the opposite. You know, we came here, uh, and of course, we're we're. Uh, educated and we're white and we play music i play banjo you know <laughs> that's a lot easier than for instance being mexican and coming to wilkesboro you know but uh but for me uh the south is a, is a place you know where people are really friendly and uh and where i really like to live because uh nobody tailgates me you know i can i could get a work and i can get a building permit for my house for $320, you know. I I can do whatever I want. I'm totally free. It's I've never experienced anything like that, you know. That's uh and I don't think that in in you know near cities like New York or Boston you could do what what we did here, you know, just buy land, build houses, do things, play our music. Uh that's a very that's spectacular. You know, I will I never forget that. I I wake up in the morning I have to pinch myself sometimes and go like, "Wow, this is amazing." You know. <laughs> I would say in my uh perspective as a journalist, the friendliest I would say sincerely friendliest people I've ever come across in the music industry were bluegrass and mountain musicians. I think a lot of that comes from the background that these are real people. A lot of them have full-time jobs during the week. They work Monday morning until Thursday night, maybe even Friday night, and they have a show Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. There's um, an aspect of humility and sensibility that resides in it because these are working folks that also happen to be very talented musicians. Some of the biggest names in bluegrass and Americana music are full-time employees at other companies. Which is crazy to think when you compare it to like the success in other genres, where you have a very successful rock band or a very successful jazz or blues band, they probably don't have a nine to five job on Monday. Uh, myself, I grew up on the Canadian border, as far away from the South in this country as you can get. And growing up there, you hear stereotypes about the South because it's all over pop culture. You know, the movies like Deliverance and then the whole hillbilly thing and Mountain Dew soda and all that stuff where where it almost uh, became like a commodity of the Southern hillbilly. And it's not until you immerse yourself in, in Western North Carolina or East Tennessee or, or Southwest Virginia or Southeastern Kentucky, upstate South Carolina, North Georgia, the real Southern Appalachian area, that you realize just how incredibly intelligent and well-spoken and forthright the folks are. Every stereotype I ever heard growing up in the North I have eliminated since I've lived in the South and vice versa. There's a lot of stereotypes about the North that I not only kind of see living down here from a different perspective, but I also see how both sides are just as weary of each other uh, as ever. It's kind of funny where, 
you know, people look at these invisible boundaries that are on a map and say, well, that's different than, than where I stand over here. But, you know, we as a people have a lot more in common than I think we, we, we might realize wherever you live in this country. There's a southern accent where That's Tom Petty following Garrett Woodward, author of If You Can't Play, Get Off the Stage, compiling interviews with artists like David Grisman, infamous string dusters Tim O'Brien, Rhonda Vincent, and many other greats, both young and old. Continuing our thread of conversation on Southern hospitality now is Stu Vincent with some memories of the Merlefest Music Festival, followed by a piece from the subject of that conversation by Wayne Henderson. Carrying on with uh, Sewerfest or the Wilkesboro Fire Department. When we got there, it, it, it was uh, the beginning of the week before the festival started. And we found that we were not the only European visitor. There was a gentleman there called Kari Makinen. Kari comes over from Finland every year to go to Melfest and has done so for a, a lot longer than, than we've been going over there. But Kari is a kind of a special character. As I say, he comes from Finland every year, and every year he is a guitar maker in his own right. Every year he makes a guitar to bring over that he then donates to the Wilkesboro Fire Department so that it can be raffled off um, during Melfest. But uh, Kari is a fine musician uh, on his own CD. He's recorded with Doc. So it was not unusual that, uh, you know, you would, you would see Kari and he would be sort of running towards a truck and with a guitar in his hand and people would go, Kari, Kari, you know, come over, come over. No, 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 I'm, I, I, I go play. Well, one morning, um, Kari was like a kid at Christmas. I, I've never seen a man with such a big grin. So we caught up with him, you know, you know you're looking, looking good today, Kari. And uh, he'd been to uh, see Wayne Henson. He'd been to a jam at Wayne Henson's. And he came back, as I say, like a kid at Christmas that, that had won the Bonanza, you know. So he said, well, it looks like you had a good time. And he said, well, you had to go there and, and to play with Wayne Henson and all the other people that were there. And I know that, you know, the likes of Steve Kilby and oh, so many others uh, are often playing with Wayne Henson. But Kari said to play with these people was was just exceptional he said but better than that he got talking to Wayne Henderson about um, the guitars that he makes that he brings over for the books for fire departments well Wayne Henderson actually broke off he just kind of like let, let people play took Kari into his workshop to uh, show him his workshop show him what he was doing apparently Kari asked him some technical aspects about bracing 
And, and Wayne Henson just, just spent time talking with Carrie, explained how he approached this, um, you know, this, this particular aspect of, of guitar building, and gave Carrie some wood to take back so that he could use that in one of his projects. So, you know, it's, it's when we're talking about Southern hospitality, it, it's not just about, you know, kind of getting that lift and getting that welcome and, and, and everything else. Most people, you know, they, they may know the name of Wayne Henderson. You know, if they're not a bluegrass music fan, they may know the name of Wayne Henderson as someone who makes quite exceptional guitars. They may know that he's made guitars for the likes of Eric Clapton. If, if you want a Wayne Henderson guitar, you're going to have to wait many, many years. But then there's a tale of this man welcoming this visitor from, from Finland um, and not only that, taking him into his workshop to discuss how he approaches an aspect of guitar building and then sending him home with materials so he can give it a go himself. That is, it's just exceptional. It's exceptional. I mean, I think if you want an example of Southern hospitality, I don't think you're going to find many better than that. One of my favorite Christmas memories, you can't separate food from Christmas, was uh, after I'd rehearsed with the Luke Smathers Band, which I did for 13 years on Sunday nights in Haywood County. I would often, especially at Christmas time, go up the road to see Clay and Sue Smathers. Clay Smathers was a singing master for the shape note singing, Christian harmony singing that we do here in the mountains. And his family band was the Dutch Cove String Band, which took me in when I was a young banjo player. Quay and Sue had three daughters who played old-time music in their family band, and I would often sit in with them or take somebody's spot if June couldn't be there or Quay couldn't be there. But my favorite memory, really, of sort of this tradition is Sue Smathers always kept something on the stove or the coffee pot going or something for musicians that would drop in when they'd have jam sessions at the house. And at Christmas time, when I would go visit, she would get a poke you know, a brown paper bag, and go down in her freezer where all of her goods that she put up out of her garden and Quay's garden, they kept separate gardens, which I think is funny, and fill up a, a sack for me for Christmas full of soup and okra and corn and all these things, that she, peaches that she put up over the summer. And that was my Christmas from them. And I got to eat that, you know, all winter long and into the spring before the new vegetables came out. And it just gave me a warm feeling to know that Sue had put that up and gifted it to me every year at Christmas. No conversation on Southern culture would be complete without at least one reference to food. That's Laura Businger, director of the Madison County Arts Council and banjo player in the Midnight Plowboys. We'll touch on food themes more going forward. Maybe even throw some fried chicken to the audience when we talk about the band Southern Culture on the Skids. But before we get into that, here's a bit of music from Laura Businger. Take me back to the place where I first saw the light. 
to the sweet sunny south take me home where the mockingbirds sing me to sleep in the night oh why was i tempted to roam i think with regret of the dear home i met of the warm hearts that sheltered me then of my There's Laura Boosinger playing her version of Sweet Sunny South from her album, My Carolina Home. But it's not always friendly in the South, as you probably well know. There's a flip side to the coin of Southern hospitality, and it has been well documented. Some artists shy away from bringing it up, but others seem to excel at it. Jason Isbell comes to mind. Nina Simone has a lot to say about it, too. For Garrett Woodward, he points to another band. I'm going to put you on the spot, Garrett. Is there any one artist or group or maybe even a handful that you can point to and say, that is Southern music? Is this open to all genres? Yeah. Um, Drive-by truckers. They, to me, uh, represent the South for good or ill. Um, They are Southern music in terms of the lyrical content, in terms of their attitudes, in terms of... um, the outspoken nature of the music, the pride of the music, but also the vulnerability of the music. For as prideful as the drive-by truckers are about where they're from and what they do, they also are not afraid to talk about the vulnerabilities and the mistakes that their ancestors made. And there seems to be some of that in other genres as well, where you have to make note of the past to make sense of the present and also, I guess, use it as a litmus test for possibly where we're going in the future. And when I look at the truckers, I see how outspoken they've become, either politically or socially, about the socioeconomic problems of the South, about the, the, the dark history that sometimes gets pushed under the rug. And for me, as a journalist, it really spoke to not only my love of history, but also the idea that nothing's the same, everything's the same, where we might be 50 years in the future, but are we still dealing with the same issues? In essence, we are. I do want to talk a bit about Southern writers and or people who are perceived as Southern writers and how that's kind of pushed um, Southern music. You know, there's this amazing um, uh, lineage of you know, Flannery O'Connor's and uh, Thomas Wolfe and all these other people who maybe did not write about things specifically in the South. But they were pushing the ideas of um, talking about life and talking about um, what's really going on in, in a day-to-day existence. You know, Southern writers have always been great of uh, great in saying, "Yeah, there's a lot of dark stuff out there. You know, there's a darkness and a light. Uh, there's a brighter side too." And um, I think that has also filtered its way into the music of the South. You have you know, um, bands like Trailer Bride or great art uh, singer-songwriters like David Childers, who David Childers to me is kind of akin to Johnny Cash in that he has an interest in the light and the dark. And they are uh, fascinating and and tempting on both sides. Um, But I think something about writers from the South um, 
talk about those uh, sides of the spectrum in uh, really different ways and different colors than other writers throughout the country. And it really does feed back to the music because a lot of musicians, you know, they you know they would listen to maybe they listen to folk records, maybe they listen to rock and roll records, but they were also reading books. They were hearing, you know. Oh, you should listen to this book. You should, you know, listen to this record. You should read this book. You should. Oh, if you like this author, you should read this author. And it all kind of feeds in. It all is, you know, think of it as a giant gumbo of um, ideas and experiences, and that really feeds both um, Southern literature, Southern culture, and ultimately Southern music. bit of the band Trailer Bride, referenced by writer and photographer Daniel Costin. Of course, songs that point to and protest social inequality, racism, and struggle are nothing new. Here's writer and editor Kim Rule. Well, I was thinking about how music in especially Southern churches and Southern uh, work communities have been around for generations and how songs like you know, for example, with Zofia Horton's We Shall Overcome, which really got adapted for the labor movement from a woman in, in Charleston, South Carolina, named Lucille Simmons, who was striking for better wages in 1945, and how, you know, what she felt moved to sing in that moment in Charleston became this, you know, over the course of the next 20 years, became this anthem of that people were singing all across the South to ask for justice and equality and, and peace amid, you know, people of different with different skin colors. So, you know, I'm really interested in, in the folk process and how these songs that started their lives as either like uh, freedom songs from Dead Sleeves sang or um, work songs that people were singing in coal mines or, or whatever, and how that they evolved over time Many of them just passed on from Southern person to Southern person, but some of them were recorded and made famous by um, people like Pete Seeger, who recorded, like, Which Side Are, are You On?, which is a, a coal mining song from, from Kentucky that Florence Reese, uh, the wife of a coal miner, wrote. I think that these songs, you know, that, that are often sort of unsung heroes of Southern music, they're not necessarily the, the like pop songs of their day, but they have sustained Southern culture for generations and generations, and, and everybody knows them. Don't scare for the bosses, don't listen to their lies. Poor folks ain't got a chance unless they organize. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? 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 Which side
as we've gotten to a lot of the divisive issues of our society, a lot of lines that get drawn in the sand from a political and social uh, stance that music ultimately is a great commonality and a common denominator that brings people together rather than divides them in the, I think in the traditional music, whether it be old time, bluegrass, mountain music, you have people with um, varying and sometimes extreme political views on both sides of the fence, both red and blue. Uh, And I think it's really great to see the music being one of those things that brings people together and helps um, with the dialogue. So instead of being a divider, which so many issues are in the country today, traditional music has become a uniter for so many people on both sides of the fence there. The more we've gone into this modern world, the more we've there's a pushback to find what's some, something that's real. And I look at bluegrass and Americana and mountain music as something that's real. There's no smoke and mirrors. It's a person, a voice, an instrument, or a group of people, a group of instruments and a group of voices that are trying to make a connection on a personal level, almost a, a cosmic level, where it's something bigger than everyone involved trying to find a common ground where we're in an era of very divisive rhetoric. And music has always been that common denominator that no matter where you come from, what you believe, what you think, music is a platform for commonality and also um, compromise. It's, it's, it's used as a way to not only speak out against injustice, but also bring people together to solve problems. That was Garrett Woodward following Ty Gilpin of Mountain Home Music Company and mandolin player in the bluegrass band Unspoken Tradition, wrapping up our conversation on how music from the South acts as both a reflector and director of the culture. We turn now to some artists who have excelled at reflecting their culture over the last half century and who have gone on to symbolize Southern music from here in North Carolina to all parts of the world. The most famous of all these didn't seem to seek out fame as much as it seemed to seek him, Doc Watson. I spoke with Jens Kruger, who played with Doc for many years, about what made him so special. What's so remarkable about Doc was that his music wasn't a commercially based music. You know, when you look at Best of Flat Earl Scruggs and so forth, they were uh, highly commercially successful, you know, uh, also because they played, you know, sort of acoustic swing music, you know, in a sense, you know, how the music was structured. But with Doc Watson, it was really down-home music, you know, especially, you know, after Ralph Ransley, you know, you know, sort of discovered him and, you know, brought him to New York and so forth. There was a there was a a quality of family music on an on an extremely high level of you know musicianship, and of course then the recordings you know and of course we all know that you know but what was so remarkable about him that the music reflected a way of life, not not necessarily calculated for a lifestyle that was uh, adorable. Let's say 
uh, you know, with the whole Grand Ole Opry deal, you know, there was the idea of sort of this, you know, really, you know, this country and bluegrass ideal and how people dressed up and how everything was, you know, made the way it so would fit and it was, you know, this 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 perfect world. And but with Doc Watson's music, it seemed to be ex- it's extremely honest, you know, with the ballads and the murder ballads and everything, you know, combined. And he was probably the first one that was recorded. Uh, who really, you know, made great attention over in Europe, you know, about the American way of life. Um, not in a fashionable way, but see, you know, just the down-home people of how they actually are. And, of course, there are a lot of musicians around here who did similar things, you know, like Doc Boggs, you know, and all, all, you know, all kinds of people. But they were not, I don't know how you can, they were not polished, you know, enough to 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 bridge the gap between the cultures. And Doc Watson had a, had a way of being uh, so proficient in what he did, pr- prolific and uh, uh, exquisitely clean uh, and driving and his timing and the way his instruments were tuned and just everything about him was such high quality, quality that in Europe or everywhere in the world, I suppose, you know, in, in Australia, you know, it doesn't matter where. When, when you listen to that, you know you're you're actually witnessing amazing quality, amazing musically achieve, musical achievement, and then be, and then he represents this real rural, you know, America uh, of the South, uh, and. That actually was is significant because America is a is a is a country of immigrants, and uh, the dream of coming to this place was actually by Doc was was by Doc. I would claim that Doc Watson was responsible for a lot of people to come here to America, or actually start to believing in this American dream outside of America. Of course, you know Hollywood did its share, and 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 the Grand Ole Opry did its share, but there's a quality of how people can live and interact with each other of the South that nobody actually was so prominently featured outside of the U.S. than Doc Watson was. one of Doc's most famous tunes, and a bit of Black Mountain Rag here on Southern Songs and Stories. The innovation of his playing style, his otherworldly playing ability, and great singing voice, his subject matter and his humility, all combined into the legend of Doc Watson, a legend which is alive and well in his music that countless musicians try to emulate all over the globe every day. But it was the innovation that took him to that legendary status more than the other qualities, in my mind. This is the key for so much of the music in the South, innovation and invention. Going back to the beginnings, when string bands brought together instruments and musical traditions that had never mixed before, to the birth of jazz and blues, bluegrass and country, the theme of innovation and invention is always present. This would keep happening after Doc Watson exploded on the scene and continues today. 
Bands like the Allman Brothers bridged jazz and blues and rock and roll like no one before or since. More recently, groups like Alabama Shakes have gathered worldwide acclaim. Now, not everyone was reinventing the wheel. Some of these artists were more skilled as interpreters of culture than originators of it. I spoke with writer and editor Fred Mills about his favorite band that would fall into that category. Southern Culture on the Skids from Chapel Hill is one of my favorite band, and I know you guys play them often, so you don't have to really introduce them to the uh, audience there. Uh, their very name you know, just telegraphs what they're all about, even though it was a little tongue-in-cheek. Uh, they really are a quintessential Southern uh, rock and roll band, they bring in elements of surf and garage and, and rockabilly and, and hillbilly music. I, I knew them practically from their very first show outside of Chapel Hill because I was working at the newspaper in Charlotte, and so they would come to Charlotte on a regular basis, and I got to be pretty good friends with uh, Rick Miller and the, the original incarnation of the band, and then later when it was became Rick and Mary Huff and Dave Hartman, and they really seem to revel in not so much sending up stereotypes of of the South and everything, more um, appreciating them through the lens of maybe a little bit of twisted humor and everything. They have lots of songs about food. Um, similar to Talking Heads, they have more songs about food and food, uh, from banana pudding to fried chicken. One One of their greatest songs ever that they did in concert is this long kind of swampy blues was called fried chicken and gasoline and that just tells you it's a song about a, a trucker who's out on the lonely highway and you know he's got his fried chick, tub of fried chicken beside him to keep him company and not much else they can really kind of crawl inside the notion of southernness and turn it inside out can you speak to anything that Southern culture has contributed to American music more lately? It seemed like early on there were bands that were trying to express their Southern identity. Sometimes it would just be, you know, like a straightforward uh, rockabilly or blues band, R&B that was influenced by the sound of Muscle Shoals and uh, Stax Records and and all that. Uh, When I was living in Charlotte, working for the newspaper, there were two bands that were very specifically Southern uh, expressions. One was uh, Anti-Scene, kind of a loud, aggressive punk band, and they would sing songs uh, about, you know, rednecks and drinking and hillbillies. Um, And then there was also a band called Fetchin' Bones, who uh, probably a lot of people heard about because they finally got big enough to be on a major label. And they were kind of, they characterized themselves as kind of hillbilly punks. And they did have kind of a old school, uh, way back up in the woods, uh, way back up on the mountaintop kind of vibe to them. And they kind of dressed in thrift store clothing. And they would, you know, sing about some of the typical experiences of the day, like going out to the racetrack, going out to the dirt track and hanging around the the gas station, sipping beers out back and things like that. And, you know, to this day, a a lot of bands that come out of the South are identifiably Southern. I mean, 
power pop bands like Let's Active and the DBs were definitely of a kind of a Beatles big star tradition. But then you you think about it, Big Star was from Memphis, and they were uh, a real true Southern product. So the torch keeps getting passed in different ways from one band to a, a young, the next young band coming up. And whether it's, you know, hip hop, as you say, or punk or indie rock, they, you know, you'll hear strains of it from time to time. And I, I think this really didn't begin in earnest until say the, uh, the mid to late seventies when the Allen brothers, their legacy had really taken hold. And then, in the mid eighties when the college rock bands were coming out, they didn't necessarily feel like they had to go to New York or LA anymore to get noticed. Rick Miller, Mary Huff, and Dave Hartman are Southern culture on the skids. You probably haven't lived until you've been to a Southern culture show and have had them throw you some fried chicken. Well, maybe that's an exaggeration. But exaggeration is one of their strengths, you know. So I'm taking my cue from the band. Groups like Southern culture on the skids and Fetch and Bones have turned stereotypes on their head and helped make being from and identifying with the South a cool thing for their generation. Once more everything old is new again. It's become very um, chic, if you will, to kind of, um, especially in certain genres, and I'm speaking now of modern country music, to kind of have this, uh, yeah, I'm from the South, I wear cowboy hats and or black hats and certain types of blue jeans and this and that. And, and that will always be out there. There are always people who will, will kind of take some part of what they think is Southern um, uh, culture and elements. And, and maybe it's, it's what South is to somebody and some it's not. But underneath that, you're going to have, always going to have the next generations of musicians going, you know what, I really like country and bluegrass, but I also like hip-hop. I like R&B. Um, I think uh, a great example of what the South can produce is country soul. Um, everybody from uh, Howlin' Wolf to the, the, uh, Jimmy Rogers, all these people, they love country, but they also like, you know, for lack of a better term, black music, R&B music, uh, blues, soul. And they didn't draw lines on that. Right now, it's cool to be from the South. Mm-hmm. Like having, yeah. a, having a Southern accent is uh, a positive. Yeah, you can thank the, you know, Americana music for that. I think, you know, Americana music sort of making string band music cool and, you know, sort of the music of hipsters. It does seem like there is a kind of renaissance going on with Southern culture right now. It is really cool to be from the South. Yeah, there. I mean, I live in, in Asheville, and 
you know, there are a lot of bands that feel like it's a calling card. Um, you know, bands, say, from indie rock bands from Brooklyn, you could probably call them a dime a dozen in a sense. And there's always going to be these trendy L.A. bands uh, that fit right into the, the Hollywood scene and everything. But nowadays, I think a lot of bands use being from the South, maybe even being from a, just a little tiny college town in the South, they use that as a calling card. In the future, I wonder how identifiable the South would be to us today. It's a region in flux, like everywhere, but probably a little bit more than many places in the U.S. because so many people are moving here. Will Southern hospitality survive if no one looks up from their cell phones to notice a stranger? Will we still have a drawl after more and more generations are born and raised in cities? Will Southern styles of music really be Southern if people from elsewhere make it their own? I mean, on one hand, it's great that I can talk to Stu Vincent in England, and he's agog about groups like the Kentucky Cow Tippers from the north of England or Cup of Joe, a family band from Ireland, and the Agnews, the first non-U.S. band invited to play at the IBMA. Maybe those acts are something like an echo of the British invasion, when bands from across the pond drew from American influences and reflected those back to us. In a similar fashion, when I asked Kim Rule about what artists she saw as being the new torchbearers of music that has Southern roots, she listed artists like Sarah Jarose, Aoife O'Donovan, Ben Salee, and Chris Thiele as being some of the most interesting. Mostly artists who aren't from the South and who studied a lot of classical and jazz music, which they would then fuse with things like bluegrass. On the other hand, what do we lose when we experience all these changes? There are plenty of music fans who like things just the way they were. Witness the traditionalist wings of blues and bluegrass music fans, for example. They'd be the first to quote you Bill Monroe when you bring up an artist like Chris Thiele. They'd say, that ain't no part of nothing. And do you know how many diehard blues fans just hated those R.L. Burnside records he did with Tom Rothrock? Of course, droves of young people got their first taste of the blues from those songs. And there wouldn't have been any of these forms of music or what we know as Southern culture without a lot of cross-pollination of peoples and instruments and ideas all those decades and centuries ago. So it's all good in my book. We're living in a golden era for music from the South, and we should embrace many of these changes coming our way, because change and evolution is the only way it will stay vital. If it stays in the same place long enough, you might as well box it up and put it in a museum. It's history. Speaking of history, that does it for our show. A little bit of R.L. Burnside to take us out. Thanks for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks to our sponsors, Dynamite Roasting, and our supporters on Patreon. I encourage you to spread the word about this podcast and consider helping us by subscribing and commenting on our show and by becoming a patron. You can find out more at southernsongsandstories.com and at patreon.com slash southernsongsandstories. And you can keep up with us on our Facebook page, on Twitter, at South Scenes, and Instagram, at South Stories. 
I'm your host, Joe Kendrick. It is an honor and a pleasure to be here for Southern Songs and Stories, showcasing the music of the South and the artists who make it.